chose that particular picture. It didn't mean you had to have a canoe to come to the way up course. Bit of a joke there. But really, it, I think Ian chose the picture, but it was a picture really that to me represented adventure and discovery. You know, the guys looking out to the mountains and the great outdoors and the adventure of it. And I, I suppose with most of us, there's, a, there's something that kind of that, that resonates to that. You know, even if we sit at home and watch it on the telly, we love the idea of discovery and going somewhere and finding out things. And I have to say that for me, one of the major dimensions of my life has been the discovery and to seek after truth, to find out what is the answer, you know, in all the confusion of, you know, human stuff that is going on in the world. Now, I think in one sense, it's getting even more confusing. So the kind of, the, the, the search for truth, for an answer, for some kind of clue to what it's all about is something that has driven me really for much of my life, particularly as a pastor. When you've been a minister as I have for sort of 50 something years, you, you have a kind of thing, what if, I, what if I've got this wrong? You know, what if it, you know, what if I've been preaching to people for 50 years stuff that's wrong? Uh, so constantly through the years, I've been updating and working through and reinforcing and finding new things and looking for other areas where I can uh, reinforce it. The Way Up course itself, I think, says something about what this course is about. It's a course where everybody's encouraged to actually think about stuff, weigh it up, consider it. It's not, there are not that many places where you can do that, so it's not a hard sell. You know, if somebody's here tonight and somebody's already said to me they're not a strong believer, that's fine. Uh, obviously, if we're open and we can talk about what we think and what we feel, that will be also helpful. But this is a course that is for everybody, really, that is interested, as I am, in discovering truth and finding out some of the answers. Okay, so here we go. This is the first one in the series, Foundation Questions. Uh, I, love, I just took that picture because I didn't take it. I got it off, uh, off the internet, but I, I thought it's just a neat picture, really. I'm not sure that I want to live in that house, but it illustrates the point that the Bible actually does say that unless you build on firm foundations, then your house is quite likely to collapse. And the same is true of life. You know what I mean? If you've got an undergirding truth base that you can stand your life on, you're more likely to be able to live life successfully than if you haven't. And lots of people live as kind of agnostics, have no real certainty about anything and get by until catastrophe comes and then find their life comes tumbling down. So these are foundation questions and the first one is about as foundation as you can get. Why believe in God? You can tell from the question that I already do believe in God, but I'm hoping to kind of look at it as objectively as it's possible to do. So there's not loads of Bible quotes, there will be a few as we go on through the course, but tonight we're going to look for evidence of the existence of God out there that is available to all of us. So there's a fair bit of information that I'm going to try and put in uh, tonight, and I'm going to focus on three areas. Now, the question, is there an answer? Some people would say no. Well, Richard Dawkins would say yes, and the answer is there is no God. He's written a book, as you know, The God Delusion. But lots of other people less famous than him would certainly say, well, I'm an agnostic. I really don't know. I don't, and I, what is more, I don't think it's possible to know. So obviously, you'll have a job to convince me. But I think there is an answer, and we're going to look at three areas tonight that I think are significant. First of all, the incredible design. This has been a bit of a life study for me, well, at least through the last 20 years or so, 
the incredible wonder of the world around us. It's available to all of us, but mostly we don't get to think about it or process it very much. Secondly, we're going to look at history. We hear lots about archaeologists and all the things that they do and things they find out, etc., etc. So we're going to look at history. Is there any hard history that could point to the fact that God is a God that is active in history and doing stuff? Thirdly, we're going to look at human beings, ourselves. I mean, we are very amazing, not just biologically, but the software inside of us takes an awful lot of explaining. So we're going to look at that. Okay, first one, then amazing design. Uh, I put that picture of planet Earth up there, not because I wanted to talk about it, but then I thought, actually, if you're thinking about design, the planet that we live on is pretty amazing. We've never had the chance to have a picture from outside the Earth until really the last, I don't know, 50 years, something like that. Um, and now we can see it, and you can see this incredible uh, ball of matter surrounded by a very thin film of atmosphere. You see the very faint blue sort of sheen around it. The Earth is actually traveling. I had to work out the maths for this, but the Earth is actually traveling at something like 70,000 miles an hour. So it is hurtling, I mean, very fast in order to go around the, the circumference of its 93 million miles from the sun circuit in a year, it has to be traveling at that kind of speed. So traveling at 70,000 miles an hour with its protected environment, with amazing, you know, diversity, with the whole balance of everything working together, you could do a lot worse than say, however did it get there? Now, of course, they say, because it all happened by accident, it must have happened in loads of other places. But so far, the evidence is not going in favor of that. The evidence is suggesting that there is nowhere else in the universe that we found so far where there is any life, not even a microbe anywhere, but here on this planet, which is absolutely teeming. That makes you think. It is unique. And although you can talk about the fact there may be something out there, until you actually find it, you don't have any evidence. Here's my one passage from the Bible tonight, which I did want to throw in, if you bear with me. Romans 1.20, it says, Since the earliest times, men have seen the earth and sky and all that God made and have known of his existence and great eternal power. So this is a, this is a, this is, you know, people have believed in God, like for generations, like forever, people have believed in God. So they will have no excuse when they stand before God at Judgment Day. In other words, God, the Bible says there is so much evidence out there. You don't, you don't have to go to church. You don't even have to read the Bible. You just have to look at creation and nature, and it's staring you in the face if you've got an eye to see. Okay, so now we move on to a few. I mean, this is amazing stuff. I mean, I, I tried to work out the size of a, of a human cell, and I find there's a huge variation in size. But even if you take a medium-sized cell, you could get a 1,000 of them in a speck of dust. I mean, they are that small. They are incredibly small. But when you unpack them, you find, I mean, that's only a model, and that is a lot simpler than the real thing. But I mean, if you look at that model there, there's a few things that I think are worth pointing out on it. First of all, there's the DNA. Everybody knows about DNA. We're hearing about it all the time these days. I mean, the DNA is a it's complex digital code 
about 3,000 million bits of information in loads of separate little chapters. If you string it together, it's about six foot in length, but it's compressed, remember, into a cell that is so small you wouldn't hardly see it. How do you, how do, you do that? How do you get that kind of accuracy? I mean, we think we've done well with our telephones and our digital appliances. It is nothing compared with what we are in terms of our cellular structure. All the program for the whole cell, in fact, the whole body is contained within every cell and in its DNA. That is amazing on this code. Those largish kind of sausage-like things there, um, they're, they're mitochondria. Don't worry about the word, they're just batteries. They're the batteries that fuel the cell. They've got little dynamos embedded in them that charge it up, keep your battery charged so that you, your cells keep functioning and working. I mean, how amazing is that? And remember, this is all extremely small. This is minute. The wall of the cell is made up of, of complete strings and strings of proteins all kind of clunked together to form a kind of fabric around the cell and they're hydrophobic on the outside. In other words, they don't like water, so water can't penetrate. I mean, this is really sounding to me like this has been designed by somebody who is extremely clever, an engineer beyond anything that we know. Those little yellow pieces, pieces there are little machines that process amino acids and turn them into proteins. Now, I'm not going to say a lot about this tonight, because you'll be thinking, oh no, my head really hurts. But everything in the cell is made of proteins. That's why if you eat a piece of meat, you eat a lot of protein, because living flesh is full of protein. Cells are full of protein. And these little yellow things, they process amino acids, turn them into proteins that then form all the structure and the architecture of the cell. Now, these green things, they're highly stylized, but they kind of look like a load of miniature pancakes. Uh, the, I mean, they've got a name, but don't worry about it. Uh, they're called here the sorting and the packing department. The proteins that are made by the little yellow thingamabobs there go to the sorting and packing department. They're gathered up there, they're given an address, and they're put on a little machine that carries them to all the different parts of the cell. In fact, if anything goes wrong with that address system, that can cause extremely serious illnesses. You know what I mean? You sometimes wonder why we get ill. To me, it's amazing that we don't get ill. You know, when you, when you think of the technology that is actually happening in this cell, it's amazing that it works at all. This is the little fella that is responsible for uh, packaging and uh, carrying the stuff. You'll see he's got a, um, that, that's the protein load. It's got a little stalk and then two little legs on the bottom. Do you see that? That's called a kinesin linear motor. Again, don't worry too much about the name of it. It can only go one way down what's called a microtubule. And then there's another machine, if you have to bring things back the other way, it goes the other way. In fact, there are loads of these little nano machines in this little cell that is only is smaller than a grain of dust. This is incredible. And people say, oh, they all evolved. Oh, yeah? How are you going to evolve that? How are you going to do that slowly and gradually? Now here, I have to give a slight apology, because I've got a bit of animation here, uh, which is probably not as slick as I would like it to be, but this is an animation of the Kinesian linear motor. Inside a living cell is an amazing transportation system. 
Proteins have to be delivered to the correct part of the cell to perform their intended functions. This animation, based on a lot of clever research over a number of years, shows how it happens. Highways made of microtubules are assembled by interlocking proteins, each manufactured in accordance with the coded instructions on the cell's DNA. Marching along a microtubule is the kinesin motor, the hero of our story, carrying a huge sack of proteins to be delivered to a predetermined place in the cell. Here, the proteins will be released to fulfill their functions. A kinesin linear motor uses one ATP to provide the energy for each step and takes 125,000 steps to cover one millimeter. This amazing machine shows all the hallmarks of design. Did you get the scale of that? 125,000 steps to cover one millimeter. Remember that a millimeter is like it's, it's about a thousand, you could probably get about a thousand plus cells in a square millimeter. You know how small a millimeter is. So that, is, so that thing, although it takes 125,000 steps to cross, the, to cross one millimeter, it actually never walks that far because it's got quite short journeys. Uh, and I don't know how fast it works, whether, whether it walks faster than that or not. It is only an animation, but that is now the perceived wisdom. There are many people that say, well, I don't believe in God, but they believe in this. There are many scientists. I don't quite know how they hold those two together, how they could actually work, that that could, that that could just evolve like that. The complexity of it is beyond brilliant. Okay, now, so that's the micro world. Second thing that I wanted to do uh, on amazing design uh, is incredible animal behavior. I mean, there is so much of it, I don't know where to start, but I thought I'd start with the emperor penguin. The emperor penguin, I mean, that's the male that you've got there, and you can see that they've all got little eggs balanced on their feet. Uh, the female lays the egg just really at the beginning of the Arctic winter, and then goes off and feeds herself because she's completely starved and goes to replenish and has to travel uh, to do that, leaving the egg with the male. It must not touch the ground or it will freeze and die. The temperatures go down to minus 50 degrees, so it's pretty tough there in the Arctic. And for three months, those penguins stand there with those eggs. They, they shuffle about a bit uh, and they ro rotate themselves so that they, they take it in turns to be on the outside of the group in the full you know, blast of the Arctic winter. And for three months, they care for these eggs and look after them and keep them warm and alive until the chick finally breaks out. I don't know how they kind of balance it when they finally, the chick gets out and starts wriggling, but anyway, uh, they manage it somehow. And then the male regurgitates, remember he's not eaten anything for three months in freezing temperatures, that regurgitates the last bit of food he's got. I can't imagine that that would be a tasty meal and I don't fancy the thought of it at all. It's been sitting in the, the but there you go, never mind. Uh, so, uh, and that feeds the young. And then hopefully, and nearly always, the female returns from her feed and takes over. And then he slides his way across the ice for about 30 miles uh, until he can get into the sea, then swims for about an hour before he finally gets his own food and replenishes. That's incredible. What, where does that come from? You know, does he know, how does he know she's going to turn up? 
How, why is he able to make those enormous acts of self-sacrifice? You know, you say, well, it's instinct, but where does the instinct come from? How do you program such complex instincts into the DNA of a creature that is not that intelligent for all other things? And you'll, you find examples of it all through nature where creatures do things that seem to be intelligent or moral, uh, sacrificial, whatever, when you don't really feel that they have that capacity in them. Somebody has put it in them. That's what I believe. Monarch butterflies, second one. There's only two of these, but, but these really tell the story. The monarch butterfly has got the most incredible life cycle of any small creature I've ever come across. I mean, they all live in one valley. It, these are the ones in the Northern America. I don't know about any others. I think there are similar things in other continents. But in, in, in America, there's a whole valley that is jam-packed with monarch butterflies where they overwinter. In February, they start to wake up, get active, mate, and then the female then starts a journey north. What makes her do that? Uh, she goes until about the springtime. She lays her eggs and then dies. Uh, the eggs go through the whole cycle, caterpillars, etc., etc. And they form another butterfly. And the next butterfly carries on the journey. How do they know that? Who gave them a map? Could you find your way from Mexico to a specific place in Canada? and do it over three generations. And you can't pass it on father or mother to daughter. <laughs> you know, there's a caterpillar in the middle. You know, you couldn't whisper to a pupa and then a caterpillar, pass it on down the line, guys. The next stage of the journey goes onwards. It's incomprehensible, such complex. After two generations, the final generation gets up to Canada where they gorge themselves on milkweed, which is apparently their favorite thing, and they call that a super generation. That one then flies all the way back to Mexico where they go into... Isn't that incredible? Who, who worked that out? I mean, do you ever get, do you ever get butterflies saying, I'm not going to do that? I'm not, I'm not going to keep going north. I'm re I really feel I'm stuck in a rut, you know, I keep traveling the same journey. Uh, but they do it. Where did it come from? How does something, a, a butterfly brain, get that in them? I mean, these are things that are completely beyond our comprehension. And it's impossible, as far as I can see, to work out how you could evolve those things. Okay, number three, the human ear. I used to do the human eye, but the trouble with the human eye is it's, it's nearly all software. There, there is a lens and retina and stuff like that, so we can understand that. But the human ear is absolutely great. I mean, it, I mean, look at that. That is such a good thing for picking up sound, and not only picking up sound, but picking up directionally, to be able to tell where it's coming from at least in some some of us are getting a bit hard of hearing, so it's not working quite as well. The hole in your ear is just too small for you to get your finger in. How good's that? You know what I mean? If babies could get their fingers in their ears, how many babies would have burst eardrums? And, you know, you get that itch inside your ear. Don't use cotton buds, by the way, everybody. You know you mustn't use cotton buds. But, I mean, your fingers, thankfully, have been designed too big to go in your ear. But when you get into it, you get the most incredible thing. There's, of course, the, the tympanic membrane or the eardrum, as we normally call it. That is then connected to these three bones here that go into the fluid field cochlea. Uh, I'll break that down into a, a bit smaller. Those three bones fascinate me. They are, as you know, the smallest bones in the body, and uh, they are connected together with ligaments, and they're set so that they can vibrate at a frequency 
of 20 to 20,000 um, oscillations per second. I mean, though you think of that, those three tiny little bones joined together with some sort of, I don't know quite how they join, with some kind of ligaments, so that they magnify the vibrations on the eardrum through into the cochlea, and they work. I mean, I'm amazed that I've got any hearing at all after all the years that might have been going. And uh, incredible, 20,000 vibrations per second, they can pick up human hearing. Dog's hearing is even better. Uh, there they are by the side of a, I think that's probably about, it's an American coin, but it's probably about the side of a sixpence. So you can see how small they are. How small are they going to be in a baby? Uh, I mean, I'm assuming that a baby's ones are smaller and grow with the skull. That's another thing. How does all this stuff grow in tandem together? I mean, people often talk about getting growing pains. I'm amazed we don't have more pain when you think of all the different bits of our bodies that have to coordinate and grow at the same space at the same time so that the whole thing works. Well, I don't know about you, but I find the, the, the hearing amazing. And it can pick up the most incredibly low vibrations of sound. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, a human voice is not a massive thing. You know, I mean, obviously, you can have great big speakers and amplifiers and everything else, but an ordinary human voice is setting up fairly low levels of vibration, but that can travel across this room, and you can pick that up in your ear. I mean, the magnifying effect of this system is absolutely amazing. And it goes, so it goes through this air gap here, goes into that eardrum in that, and multiplies it, goes down the way through that, through that, through that, and there are little hairs, the whole of the length of that, that complicated snail-like thing, that when the vibrations come, they bend. And as they bend, there's a little valve in the end of the hair that opens, and one ATP molecule, go, don't worry about that, it just goes down that, and that's turned into a frequency, and the brain interprets that as sound. How amazing is that? And you can hear different tones, you can hear a different person's voice. So, I mean, the quality of this equipment is really... Well, you know, I mean, there's no point having hi-fi if we didn't have hi-fi hearing, is it? You know, the, the, the sound will be better than the hearing that we can do. So the human ear, to me, is absolutely amazing. So if you're in a debate with somebody who says, well, I don't believe in God, it all evolved, talk to them about the human ear. Now, for me, there are some implications of this. I mean, such design implies, number one, we're not alone. I mean, that is the biggest one of all. I'm hoping some of you will say, okay, maybe. You know, if you're not a believer, you might say, well, maybe I consider that that is a possibility. There maybe is somebody there after all, that we're not just a massive accident, a fluke that's happened by a few chemicals coming together. But it also implies something about such a person, that there is a massive intelligence. I mean, the brilliance of this is incredible. I mean, we can't even take it apart make the parts, and then put it back together again, even though we've got it. What kind of intelligence do you make? You need to make the originals. To make dolphins, and pussycats, and dogs, and people, and trees, and plants, and food, and the earth, and what kind of intelligence do you need for that? There's, somebody up there is extremely bright, I have to say. Secondly, it seems to me to show intense purpose. People often say, well, I don't think God cares about us. I don't think he's, you know, gone on holiday. And there are lots of, that's quite common among the human race. He may be there, but he's not bothered about me. Yet why would he have gone to such 
purposeful activity? Why would he have created the world as it is? Why would he have made us with all that we have if he, if, if he didn't actually have a purpose in it? So I'd say to find out the purpose, what am I here for, has to be the major. You know, we're often busy with other things. Where should I go on holiday and what should I do tomorrow? And, you know, what about this? And, you know, I want to buy, buy a new bit of furniture for the house and so on and so on. But in the scheme of things, what am I here for is the fundamental question. If I get the answer to that wrong, everything else in my life might turn out wrong too. So purpose and artistry. It's... It's all, I mean, those dolphins, I put them up there because I thought, I mean, I've got so many pictures, I couldn't, couldn't think what to put in, so I put in as much as I could. <laughs> but I mean, they're beautiful. I mean, everything is beautiful in its own way. Everything has its place. I mean, spiders I'm not so sure at, but God has mercifully made them small. So mostly the ugly stuff is small, <laughs> thankfully. But there is great artistry and and, and engineering and brilliance in it all. And I'm putting it to you that there is also a profound purpose. Okay, now um, I'm going to keep, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping myself to a time, so don't worry, won't be here forever. The second major thing, but this is hopefully getting shorter, is clues in history. We talked about archaeology, that's Ephesus in southeast Turkey. We went there on a holiday a couple of years ago. Fascinating to see all the buildings that are still there. Um, after all the thousands of years that they've gone. But here are a few specific things that I think bear on the subject that I'm looking at tonight. Um, that, uh, that picture there is a, a, an Assyrian cylinder seal that was dug up by an archaeologist in the uh, late 19th century. It was stuck in the British Museum and didn't really see the light of day. Partly, I may suggest rather cynically, because it didn't fit in with the prevailing worldview, is that people started with primitive religion and then slowly evolved to get more complicated. Uh, partly because people didn't believe anyway in the Bible, and therefore something like that, that well, I mean, what, is, what do you see in that picture? Is it just me? I, I see a tree, I see a man and a woman. I mean, interesting, the man's got horns, which is a common ancient sign of a demigod figure. You know, like more than basic human. So you've got the man and the woman sitting either side of it. The woman is reaching out to take the fruit, and guess who's standing behind her? I mean, this is, this is Assyria. They did not have the same belief system, but somehow, way back in their history, they had this. And they put it into a seal, and it's come down to us. Uh, very interesting, I, re I was reading something some years ago now, that when missionaries first went to Africa, they found most of the people were involved in... Um, animism and witchcraft and, you know, there were spirits in the river and spirits in the trees and spirits in all sorts of, you know, places. But they found when they got talking to the people that they also had a belief in one fundamental God. They thought that that God didn't really care about them and so they'd actually started to sort of divert into all these other things. But they had it. I recently read a book that just confirmed that completely, that this is actually a global phenomenon that although you've got, and we're going to look at that next week, the many religions in the world, you've got many religions in the world, it looks like at the beginning of all these religions, if you go back far enough, you find that there was the belief in one creator God. And some of the accounts that you find in the Bible actually have even then survived, often through you know, years of unbelief and other religions and so on. So the Chinese, the ancient Chinese, have got a legend of, of man being expelled from a garden and them not being able to go back in again and, 
And they, they, for many years, before Confucius and certainly before communism, they would go back to their border and they would offer a sacrifice to the one that I think he calls Sheng Si or something like that, who was the, the all-powerful god. And that was for a long time in China. Many of the major Chinese buildings in the Forbidden City still celebrate that, even though most people... It's been overlaid by years of history. But these are degenerative uh, of history. Originally, there was a much more solid, pure, straight belief. So universal belief in one created God is interesting. It doesn't prove anything, but it's interesting. Secondly, ancient events. I've got a whole series on this, and tonight I can only touch upon it. Uh, most of you will know the story of Noah and the flood. Most people do not know there are over 200 cultures in the world that have the story of a flood that wiped out the human race. 200 cultures, almost every, everywhere, from the Aboriginals to the uh, Eskimos, to all, all across the world. The memory of this catastrophe has traveled down through the human race. Uh, that there is a satellite picture um, in the, taken in the 1960s over the um, mountains of Ararat, and, uh, which of course is where the Bible says that the ark came to land. And it does look remarkably boat-shaped. I mean, there was a big debate whether it was a natural thing, and some people concluded it was a natural thing. But some uh, people persevered with it and uh, came to the conclusion there was loads of corroborative evidence that indicated that it certainly was. Um, it was actually the right size. I mean, that's, a, that's probably a better picture of it. You can see the outline of it there. An earthquake happened, <clears throat> interestingly enough, and the land around it fell down, and the, the boat shape just stood there. So they're kind of big, um, you know, shaped all of the, of, the, of the things. And they found loads of sort of things supporting it. Now, that, you have to say that is very persuasive. A, a boat that was 5,000 foot up in the mountains of over 500 feet long, how'd that get there? Well, the oceans must have once been deeper. In fact, actually, the earth could have been flooded. And if you think about it, most of the rocks in the earth are sedimentary. They've been laid down by water, including on the top of the Himalayas. There are eggshells embedded in the rocks on the top of the Himalayas. So something pretty radical has happened in the earth. It has not been slowly evolving over millions of years. It has gone through a major cataclysm. And there is evidence there to suggest that. So it's worth checking it out. Moses and the Red Sea. Most of you will probably know the story of Moses who crossed the Red Sea with the children of Israel to take them out of Egypt. And, and in fact, most scholars have come to, come to the conclusion it was a myth. It didn't actually really happen at all. But all the places where they were looking were the wrong places. Actually, if you go back to what the Bible says about where it is, which is what some people did, they found remains even today. I'm not sure where they still are now, but this was 30, 40 years ago. That is, a, that is the remains of a chariot wheel covered with coral, and, uh, and it's in the middle of the Gulf of Aqaba, which is what the top branch of the Red Sea. Uh, that one there is a, a more shiny one. The, um, the coral wouldn't stick to that. That would probably have been the wheel of one of the royal chariots where the priests and the aristocracy would have been riding. Uh, that one there is a, um, a wheel complete with an axle. So, I mean, you, you have to imagine, but you can see that's a very unusual shape uh, of coral. It wouldn't normally grow like that, uh, but of course, because it's, it's it, I think they found several where one wheel was flat down 
axle up and then the other wheel like that. So they just kind of come to rest like that. Um, there. That one is a, that picture is the actual photograph there and that they, they um, artistically put it in. You probably don't need to actually get that, but you get the message of it uh, indicating that this thing, which even the scholars that studied the Bible were saying, well, no, that didn't happen. We can't find any evidence of that. We find in fact that it did happen. We are living in a brilliant time, actually, for finding out evidence of things that have happened, probably better than any other time in history. Thirdly, the history of Israel itself. Israel is the weirdest country in the world. There is nothing else like it. A country that has existed often for many of the years, it's been out of its land, separated, persecuted, hounded. Still today, surrounded by a couple of hundred million uh, hostile people, and it's still there. The Bible says Israel is God's chosen people. You have to say it does look a bit like that. I mean, it hasn't always been easy to be God's chosen people. You have to also say that. I mean, they're formed in Egypt as a great clan, a family of people. They're led out of Egypt. They consolidate in the wilderness. They come to Mount Sinai. That's a picture of the mountain. People have been on that mountain. They say the whole mountain is burnt at the top like obsidian, all the rocks, just ordinary as they were, but they've all turned black. It's still there today. It's amazing. But it's in Saudi Arabia, so it's actually very hard to get it. Midian is in Saudi Arabia. So in the place where the Bible says it is, it's exactly where it is. Anyway, there you go. So they were formed. They, they came to this mountain in Sinai when God came down in searing heat, burned the mountain. They formed a covenant with God that he would be their God and they would be his people. God chose them to be a light to the nations to take his message out to the peoples. Uh, they were exiled in Babylon. I mean, they've had a very checkered history. First Israel, then the rest of Israel, Judah, the other tribes were all taken away, first to Assyria, then to Babylon, and so on. They were destroyed by the Romans, scattered to the world. They, were, they went through the Holocaust as recently a living memory, and of course they are now today in Israel. We have to say that's, that's weird, isn't it? You know, I mean, anybody that says, well, I don't believe in God, look at Israel. What, well, how do you account for that? How do you account for this country? How do you account for the fact, with, with a population not that much bigger than Wales, they're standing against a couple of hundred million hostile nations. Not nations, but a couple of hundred million hostile people. Okay. Perhaps the most crucial uh, historic thing in my list of historical things is Christ himself. I mean... The whole of, of my understanding of truth stands or falls on Christ. He either was what he said he was, or he's, he's, a, he's a charlatan and, uh, and a liar. And, uh, and my own conviction, of course, is that, uh, it, that it is that he was exactly what he says. Well, I'm going to give a bit more time to this later on in the course, but for now, you couldn't go through this bit without mentioning this. The impact on history of Jesus of Nazareth. There is a, a, a thing somewhere that says one solitary life. There is no other life in the whole of the history of the human race that has impacted on the lives of men and nations, not just in terms of politics, but in the terms of individual people finding new life, new hope, new purpose, new healings and deliverances and freedoms. Nothing more than this one person. Muhammad didn't do it. Buddha didn't do it, although they're quite popular today in history. This one, Jesus Christ, massive impact. 
He was the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. And, uh, and then he died and rose. That's not bad, is it? And you can't, I mean, had he not risen, had he stayed in the tomb, Christianity wouldn't have got off the ground. You know, the, the authorities would have dug the body out, paraded it through the street, said, this is your risen saviour, dead. Where, where would be? Why would Christians have died in the Roman arena? Why would they have gone through persecution? For one reason only, because they said, we've seen him. We know that he is alive, risen. He said he's rising and he is risen. So Christ, number four. So there's a lot in history, it seems to me, that indicates uh, the significance of God's activity again and again for generations, thousands of years. My final one. You think, oh, at last, it's a bit hot, isn't it? How are you doing? You know, usually, usually flit and fan yourselves if you need to, or just sweat like I am. It's okay. Um, I don't know about you, but when I see when I see ice skating, particularly pair skating, where there are two, a man and a woman in tandem together with the most amazing acrobatic things that they do. When I see sports people, the stuff they do on skis and running, the, the lengths to which human beings can stretch. I mean, I, I can't do any of that, but I think that we are amazing. Human beings are amazing. We need to stop and get some kind of explanation. In Psalm 8, verse 4, the psalmist says, what is man? that you are mindful of, such as but what, what, who are we? I mean, Richard Dawkins would say, well, you're just a bunch of chemicals. You're a load of amino acids and proteins, which we all know about, don't we? Because we've already talked about that. You're just a load of amino acids and proteins and a bit of gel and a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of biochemistry. That's all you are. End of story. But I bet if somebody were to break into his house and rape his wife, <clears throat> He wouldn't come home and say, don't worry, dear, you're only a bunch of chemicals. Would he? No. Because we know that, we are, that we are, there is something in us that is more than the sum of our parts. So first of all, then, the mystery of personality. I mean, these two, they're, they're, I think they're over 50 now. They're the longest living pair of conjoined twins, Laurie and Dory. Chapel. I mean, very interesting. They've come to lots of conclusions about human beings and their, um, you know, their personality and so on and so on as a result of these twins. Because you often say, well, you know, if people were to say to you, well, what makes me who I am? Where is the real you? What would you say? I don't know. You know, if you were to, if you were to chop my arm off, would I, would I still be there? Yeah. If you chop both arms off, would I, yeah. If you chop both arms, both legs, would I still, yeah. So where am I? You know, most people would say, well, you probably, it's in your brain. You know, that computer up in your head, somewhere you're there. You're the, you're the sum of your memories. And I can understand why you'd say that, because the brain and the spirit of a person are very closely linked to one another. But the interesting thing about these two is that they've got the same brain. I mean, share, not completely all of it, but most, they share a whole lot of their brain. There's two people in one brain. So then what did we say about where am I? And what is the mystery of a person? And where did we, where did we come from? I mean, somebody coined the phrase a long time ago, a ghost in a machine. I'm not sure that I totally like that idea, but the idea that, that, that inside us there is a living soul, a living spirit 
that my body is getting older, but my inside is not. Is actually what the Bible says. That is the reality of it. You have to say, there's a lot to be said for that. The mystery of personality. Where is the consciousness then? It's not necessarily in the brain. Is it through suffusing the whole I don't know. Don't know the answer to that, but the question seems to me points us beyond ourselves. I mean, my son over there, he won't mind me saying, is a physicist. And he said to me the other day, Daddy said, the more you go in physics, the more you find it's mysterious. You know, when you first learn science, you think it's all hard and fast, definite, solid. But actually, the further you go, you find it's not. It's almost like magic. I think that's what you said, didn't you? He said that. Uh, it's like magic. You know, the whole of reality that we think is really logical, at the level that we live it, is logical. But underneath it all, there's like magic, mystery, spiritual input that we cannot we haven't a clue about. We can't actually tie it together and make sense of it. So if you say, like Richard Dawkins, well, I'm just a pile of amino acids and uh, proteins and a few bits of chemicals, complicated biochemicals, you see how long you can live with that thing. He, he couldn't live with that. Nobody could, because we know that we are more than that. So the mystery of personality is one. The need for love is again another enduring mystery and indicates that we are not just chunks of chemicals. We are motivated by love. I mean, how many people read romantic magazines? Probably nobody, but stories, romantic interest. I mean, how many people spend their lives looking for a, a loving partner, for somebody they can give themselves to? Pretty well all of us in some way or another. So we are motivated by, really, by the, the need to love and be loved and to find love. And we find, in fact, that all the research says that if we grow up um, uh, lacking in love, it messes us up. It, it, it alters our chemistry and our uh, psychology, and we don't function well. We've been created to function in an atmosphere of love, and in an atmosphere of love we flourish. And the Bible says God is love. Could it be that he stamped his personality on his whole creation? Much of it is fallen. We don't do very well at it. Often our romances and our loves break up. They don't, you know, don't accomplish all they want to. We've got all sorts of dynamic problems that we cope with. All of us will be aware of that, but yet we are created, really, to function in love. Finally, there you go, preoccupation with worship. Now, you may say, actually, you could put a question mark over that for modern uh, 20th century Europe, and I'm inclined to agree with you. But certainly when... Uh, uh, Anthropologists are looking at ancient fossils of man if they find any evidence that the, those fossils worshipped, any evidence of sacrifice or anything like that, they say immediately, human. Animals don't do it at all. You know, I mean, a dog might love its master, but it certainly has no sense of worshipping outside of itself as people do. We alone in the whole created order uh, worship. You have to say, this is either a massive quirk in our wiring, or maybe we were made for that purpose. <clears throat> now you may say, well, I mean, I do fine. Loads of people do fine. 
But I have to say that atheism, which is quite common now in modern Europe, atheism and agnosticism, is actually quite rare in history. It does not come much. We have been able to do it because, as Richard Dawkins says, evolution has enabled him to be a self-fulfilled atheist. And that's probably true for many people. Many people live in the belief that evolution has solved all the problems. I don't have to worry about all this design stuff. I don't have to believe that somebody created me because it all just happened as a massive accident. I will try and address this specifically in a couple of weeks' time when we look at the question of evolution. But that is the belief that many hold so that 20th century modern Western civilization has largely lost sight of God and considered it really somewhat childish and not something that is suitable for uh, adult, sophisticated human beings like we are. Uh, preoccupation with worship then finally drawing to a close. Buddhism is a classic illustration of this because it's intended to be a philosophy. Buddha never said that he was a god. He was a man that was looking for enlightenment and spent his life uh, searching for it and then said at the end that he still hadn't found it. But everybody uh, now that would call themselves Buddhists generally treat him as a god. And there are statues and icons and everything of him all over the, certainly the Eastern world. And in fact, if you go to any garden center around here, you can probably find a statue of him there. So that many Western people are plonking his statue all over the place, even though he was only a man and he was looking for the answer. <clears throat> Humans everywhere are obsessed with rituals, sacred objects, etc., etc. In this picture here, You've got people in the Ganges ironically looking for purification from their sins in the highly polluted uh, river that is the Ganges at this point. But there you go. Now, mostly in Western civilization, we look upon almost any religious practices with favor unless they're Christian. You may have noticed that. Um, but everywhere we are obsessed with worship and in some ways to look to some kind of higher being. And with that go sacrifices and cleansing and purifying, etc., etc. So these don't prove, and I can't, if, you know, if, a, if, a, if, you, if you're sitting here tonight and say, well, I don't, really, I don't, I don't want to believe it, then there's not a lot I can do about that. Um, they don't prove the existence of God, but they are very interesting. And for me, they confirm the personal experience that I've had and that I'll probably tell you about as we're going through the course. And they're interesting, at least to maybe make us start thinking in a new way. So why believe in God? Here is the summary. First of all, because of the amazing design that we see in every part of nature. Uh, and I put the, I've broken that down, the, the world of the cell, the incredible human behavior and the uh, human ear. Uh, secondly, because of the clues that we find in history, universal belief in the creator, ancient events that we can see, and you've got evidence of, quite strong evidence in my opinion, and in the history of Israel itself, and we should have Christ there. I seem to have missed that off. Sorry about that. That's most important. And thirdly, hints in human beings, the mystery of personality, the need for love, preoccupation with worship. Okay, I hope I've been fair, didn't want to be dogmatic, tried to make the talk as information-rich as I possibly could. I mean, obviously, I have my own faith and my own beliefs, and I know some of you here tonight do, but all of us are free and open to search and discover, and we hope that this course will do that and won't make anybody feel, oh dear, I better toe the line, or I can't come because I don't have enough belief. It's okay. 
So it's a way up course where we can weigh stuff up. Okay, we'll pause at this point, take a moment. Has anybody got any questions that they want to come back with? Try not to make them too hard. So Conway asked the question, or really made the statement, that you can't actually prove the negative. It's impossible to prove that there is no God, and I agree. Philosophically, it is. Um, I mean, obviously, if you could prove uh, evolution, and if it worked, that would be, I suppose, quite a blow. Though lots of people wouldn't think it would be. But I'm more concerned with the positive about believing in God. And I, I don't want to overstate it personally. I don't want to say, you know, this is 100% proof, you've got to believe. But for an honest man, if you start to think about these things, it does start to make sense. And if you then pursue it, you'll find that it makes even more sense, as I've found through my years of, of pilgrimage. Another question. Kip is, Kip is making the point that another amazing thing about uh, Israel and Jerusalem itself is that not only does the Bible say it, but it is actually a reality. Geographically, it is pretty near the center of the earth. It certainly was the center of ancient civilization, of the major empires and powers that were around it, and still today continues to be in the center. So thanks, Kip. Uh, you said, Mike, I've got a question. It will be very interesting. That's, that's the question. If we found life on another planet, what difference would it make? Well, I suppose it would mean that we weren't quite as unique there is no reason why God shouldn't have or couldn't have put life on other planets. So it seems to me to be that theoretically it's possible. Practically the Bible says that God created life for here and the planets and the stars were for lights on the earth and for all sorts of other purposes but were not for life. So I, I wouldn't lose my faith if they found you know, men in the moon or whatever. Uh, I'd be a bit surprised um, but so far, there's no sign of that happening. Oh, now you're asking me a big one. If there was life on another planet... He only has one son. Yeah, what, what, what plan would God come up with? I mean, <coughs> uh, C.S. Lewis did write a science fiction story where he did imagine life on other planets that had not fallen and therefore didn't require the saviour. I suppose you'd have to say that if that were true, then you'd have to have a saviour sent... This, Jesus would have to go somewhere else as well, but I can't... No, no. I'm thinking aloud here. You do ask some hard questions. I said, don't ask me a hard question. And what did you do? <laughs> yeah, Malcolm. Malcolm is saying, you know, how, why should we think that God is a him, is personal, is male, like a big man, like me? Isn't, couldn't God just be a mist or a vapour? I think we probably have to say that, that God is not like us. We are like him. But we're very scaled down. So when you say God is big, that is very big. Big beyond anything that we could imagine. Later on in the series, we actually take an evening to look at the character of God. What is, what is God actually like? What kind of a being is God? But I'm not sure I follow your logic that says everything is so amazing, therefore it must have been made by vapour. See what I'm saying? You know, the highest category that we know of within the created universe are persons. There is nothing, you know, a machine will never really overtake a person and nor could a machine comprehend a person because we are mystical, spiritual, in another dimension, we're, we're other dimensional beings. We are phenomenally uh, complex in ourselves. And the Bible actually says, so I mean I would have to say, 
at the end of the day, I would have to take it from the Bible that we're made in the image of God. And therefore, in a lot of essential ways, we're created in such a way that we can understand God, at least in part. But I grant you, it is amazing. He's different to you and I, but he could still be, he, he spoke of himself as father. Yeah. And, and you have to say again, what, we, you know, we father children. This is Chris saying he is beyond our understanding, but because he, he's come down to visit us. Yeah. So he scaled himself down, become a man, so that we could understand. That's what the Bible says. I don't want to get into too much theology, because this is further down the thing. But thanks for that, Malcolm. That's an interesting point of view. Malcolm, Malcolm was saying that God, you know, God directed evolution. So he believes in God, believes in evolution. I have to say there are lots of Christians that would believe with you. Now, I don't believe it, not because of the theology, though it does leave you in a bit of a mess, but because of the science. Although it's peddled to us, evolution, as we see it, is actually running in the wrong direction. It's not running to greater and greater complexity, it's running to degeneration. They reckon, and I'll say more of this later, that every, the genome of every living creature is degenerating generation on generation. A human, the human race, you have a hundred more uh, mutations in your genome than your parents did, and if you had children, they would have a hundred more than you. So, because there is so much richness built into the genome, mostly we can handle it. Uh, but of course, it may be that some of the illnesses, uh, things that are popping up in our society that are not being a big problem, are due to this slow, gradual decline in the genome. That's why I believe many creatures <coughs> are becoming extinct, and it's not the other way around. In other words, what we're not seeing is loads of new creatures evolving. We're seeing existing creatures dying out. Because the Bible says that God created a perfect world and it's slowly sliding down. Darwin said, God we start with a chaotic world and it's slowly evolving up. They can't both be right. My suggestion is, and the evidence I shall try and bring in a few weeks' time, is that actually evolution is running downwards. It's not really evolution at all. So you can't move from a bacteria to a human being in a downward process. And you can see a perfect example of it in dogs. You know, if you start try breeding dogs, it's not natural selection, it's artificial selection. They're trying to breed the dogs to the best that they want, to particular characteristics. But pedigree dogs generally <coughs> are less able to survive than the ones that they came from because they've selected out information out of their genome. See, natural selection knocks stuff out of the genome. It doesn't increase it and add it. So the whole result of the process that Darwin rightly observed, natural selection, actually is degenerative, not progressive. Okay? But I'll deal with it better, hopefully, in a couple of weeks' time. Great. Anybody else? That's all very well, talking about the wonders of creation. When you're focusing on all the good things, what about all the tragedies? What about all the human suffering? And interestingly enough, people like uh, Dawkins and Darwin, for that matter, became atheists as a result of, of tragedies. Does God do that? The answer, no. But, uh, but the Bible says that once man, well, the creation was created, man sinned and we pulled the whole thing down around our ears. And so the whole creation is, the Bible actually uses the word groaning in travail. It's broken. 
And people say, well, why does God do this? God didn't do that. But, but God has to manage a broken world and still seeks to move through it to redeem us, to send Jesus to us, to rescue us out of the world. It's like we pulled down the house around our ears. Whole things come down. It wasn't God that did it, but you know what humans are like for blaming other people for what we've done. And so there's the massive tendency to blame God for everything. Yes, you're going to come in with another one. Yeah. Why has God not fixed the world now if he can? That is a big question. I mean, I think the answer is he can't. Uh, too many people are, are tied up in it. I, I once had a... Um, uh, I was digging my garden and I had a whole load of pernicious weeds in it, including convolvulus and everything else, which is said to sort of go down pretty well to Australia, you know, very hard to get out. And I was pondering to myself, if I wanted to clear my garden of all the weeds and make it beautiful again, what would I have to do? I, I, I came to the conclusion I would have to put a bulldozer right through it. I would have to dig out everything. I would have to get out every speck of weed because it will reseed again if I don't. I would have to burn the soil so that I sterilise it and then maybe at that I gave up. I thought I can't do that. And I, it struck me at the time, that was a revelation. That is what has happened to the world. God's world has become so corrupted, there are so many agents in it, there is so much stuff happening, that when God straightens it and does it, it is going to be very traumatic. So he's waiting as long as he can. If you're not sure how traumatic, read the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation talks about the end of time. There will come a time when God will say, now I will clean it up. So in the midst of it, we live in turmoil and difficulty. Those that are willing to trust can trust. Those that say, I'm not going to trust, I'm going to rebel, can rebel. And God gives us the freedom to do either whichever way we choose to go. So in that sense, although it's tough and hard, it has created an arena in which human beings can be tested and purified and made good. And the Bible says that God works together for good with all those that love him. So even if we may face some terrible illness, God will, will walk with us through it and carry it with us. Yeah, that's the parable in the Bible Doreen's referring to, where Jesus talks about the weeds all growing with the corn. And the servants in the field say, we're, we're, shall we go and dig them out? And he says, no, don't dig them out, you'll disturb all the good grain with it. Leave it until the end, the final harvest, then we'll pull it all out and then we'll separate it. Now that is, I mean, that's a very good uh, illustration, I think. That's the essence of what the Bible says. And of course, it doesn't just mean, you know, that kind of spiritually there is evil in the world, though we don't need a lot of uh, illustration to see that, but that it has actually affected the world biologically, geologically, and in every respect. The world is fallen. But the beauty still shines through, even in a fallen world. What God has done is to send Jesus. I mean, the flood was drastic surgery. Uh, the only way that you could actually cleanse the earth and hold back the tide of evil was surgery. Wipe it out. But that was not really an ideal situation and that was only until Jesus came who provided healing and deliverance and freedom to all that would want it. Next week we should be looking at the question, why all the different religions? Is there, is it, you know, as I said already, there seems to be strong evidence that once there was a universal belief in one God. What happened? What changed it? Heavenly Father, thank you for a few, this few moments together. We thank you uh, that we're all on a journey. 
and there can be an adventure in the, in the realm of truth and understanding and searching for things just as surely as if we go climbing a mountain. So we pray that you would help us to find out for ourselves the way. Thank you, Lord. Amen.